You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. And began uh, discussing uh, the potential of moving out of this building and moving out of downtown. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, most notably, most of you, actually hardly any of you, live downtown. Um, to a lot of the visitors that we've been have, uh, having to various events we've done, um, have kind of, of pretty consistently said uh, they, don't, they don't live down here and um, coming downtown, coming to this specific spot in downtown is a hindrance to them coming to church. And so, um, and in addition to that, we have been uh, kind of in a month-to-month situation with this building since we moved in. Um, so uh, looking at the demographics of our church, looking at the demographics of who's visiting our church um, and coming to the various events we're hosting, um, as well as the, just the inability to get a long-term lease or, or anything beyond a month in this building. We started looking about a year ago, and that's right, about a year ago, say it again, about a year ago, <laughs> um, for building pretty actively looking, researching spots. We had a couple of places fall through. Uh, one fell through at the very last minute. Um, we kind of all agreed to terms, and then uh, their board in the last, really in the last days, um, uh, and decided they didn't want to rent to anybody. Um, and so uh, about, about a month ago, or actually it was right before Christmas, um, uh, another pastor in town who I'm friends with uh, mentioned to me that they had uh, come to terms with a, another building um, on the west side of the city uh, and had decided not to rent there um, and that it might be perfect for us. So we started looking into it um, and started pursuing it and have, well, just to say we're moving. Um, so we're moving out of downtown. Uh, we're not going as far west as we originally thought we were going to be going, um, but we are moving across I-25. Uh, the address for the new building is 3011 Vallejo Street. Um, it's in the Highlands neighborhood. Uh, it's still in the city, um, and yet it's out of kind of the downtown area um, and still very accessible from anyone coming from I-70, I-25, and then any of those neighborhoods west of downtown. Uh, we're excited about this uh, for a number of reasons. One, uh, it, it gets us into a place that's more accessible to you, more accessible to the people who have expressed interest in our church. Um, it puts us more in a neighborhood and less in the middle of downtown. Um, and the, it get, gets us a little bit away from the transience of downtown, um, and a lot of the problems that are arising in downtown, and yet still keeps us uh, centrally located uh, to the city. Um, we'll have more information coming uh, in the, the next week or two. Um, including pictures and all the instructions and all the the fun things. Um, But uh, I will say this, on February 25th, after the service, we are going to be having a moving party. Everyone cheered. Yay! A moving party. Which means everyone gets to carry stuff, and it's so fun. Um, And uh, we're going to carry stuff and then take it over to the new building, kind of get everything unpacked and get things set up. And then our very first service there will be March the 3rd at 10 a.m. And it will be a rambunctious, rowdy party. So, we're moving March 3rd. This has been a massive answer to prayer for our church. Um, We've been praying really over a year about the potential of moving um, and then spending the last year trying to find the right spot for us. Um, A spot we could both afford and a spot that was uh, in the part of the city, at least west of 25, that we could land. Um, And uh, this building fits the bill. We're thankful for it. We're thankful um, that... In God's kindness, he hasn't put us in a warehouse or a school cafeteria. He's put us in a church building, a very much church building, 
Um, he's put us in a room that's smaller uh, so we can be closer together and you can sing louder next to your neighbors and you can hear your neighbors singing louder. Um, and he's put us within walking distance of Little Man, which is great for ice cream. So um, we're, we're excited for that. We're thankful for that. And so I want to pray and give thanks. Um, pray that God would bless this move. Um, and then Nate will read scripture for us. So Father, we give thanks to you for your kindness, for your provision um, that you have made a way for us. And so Lord, we pray that you would bless this move. Um, God, make us faithful in this new location. Make us faithful to proclaim your word, to celebrate your word, to believe your word, and to obey your word. And God, may your word bear fruit in that neighborhood, may it bear fruit throughout the city. May people who don't know you come to know you. May those who are dead in their sins and trespasses be awakened by the preaching of the gospel, to hear, to repent of their sins, and to believe. And so, Lord, we ask that you would increase our faithfulness, increase our joy, Help us to to see and to believe what you have provided for us, that you are the one who makes a way. And so God, we give thanks to you for answering our prayers. And we ask God now that you would bless us. In your name we pray, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The New Testament scripture for this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible and you want to snag one of those permanently and take it home as a gift from Trinity to you, take advantage. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 5. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The Old Testament reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 3. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second Chileab of Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom the son of Maachah, the daughter of Talmai of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah the son of Hagith. And the fifth, Shephatiah the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithraim of Iglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone to my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I have kept showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. 
And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen." And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. 
So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, these sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. So, Father, may we be quick to hear and listen to your word. May your word move quickly to our hearts so we might believe it, and then into our lives so we might obey it. God, thank you for this story, and God, may it reveal to us with greater magnitude the glory of Christ, the, the, the wonder of his kingdom, and how we might live in it. In your name we pray, amen. So we come now to Second Samuel 3. Um, and right off the bat, it tells us that the war that kicked off last week, uh, as Joab and Abner were playing games um, that quickly became very, very violent, that war becomes a long war. And you should not think of this as a cold war. You should not think of this as merely um, some rough feelings between uh, those in the north and those in the south, those of Ishbosheth and Saul's house and those of David's house, or between Joab and Abner. You should think of this as a bloody civil war. People are dying. The battle goes on for a long time. The war goes on for a long time. Between the house of Saul and the house of David, the whole nation, the 12 tribes are divided and they're killing one another. Um, This is, uh, (laughs) one of the things that happens in scripture is things um, that, that we would think are really big deals. Like, hey, you could go on for like chapters, books, about there was a long war between Um, You would expect to see more stories, more gore, more blood, more listings of who died. The text just tell us there was a long war. Next. Um, And and so, uh, but but you should let that phrase, long war, land um, and create some of the drama that's going to unfold here in chapter 3. And to to help us understand a little bit of David's actions, his words, Um, David is being very politically wise and savvy in this chapter, uh, particularly the end of this chapter, and Joab is risking everything um, in a compulsive and violent move. But as this war unfolded, as it got longer and longer, the text wants us to know, uh, God wants us to know that David is growing stronger, the house of Saul is growing weaker. And then we have this interesting paragraph inserted Verses 2 through 5. It's interesting because it's the second time this has happened in 2 Samuel. Um, a, a, an almost a side that kind of distracts us or pulls us away um, from where the action is to, to say, hey, here's what's going on in David's household. Uh, the first one just mentioned the multiplication of his wives, um, that he's adding more and more wives. Here, he lists a number of wives, six of them, Six different wives with six different sons. So now the, whether it was a problem or just an observation that occurred the first time is now multiplying. 
And this is important because Deuteronomy 17 strictly forbids a king from multiplying wives. Um, This is important because as David's rule continues, grows, it it will be weakened, ultimately undermined and broken precisely because of this. Um, The failures of David, even as we hear about his triumphs, even as we hear about him doing noble and virtuous, God-honoring things, all the while growing in his house are the very seeds of his fall. And it's really important that you see the contrast. As he's doing wonderful, glorious things, virtuous things, noble things outside his house. Inside his house are things that will ultimately unravel and weaken and hinder his reign and his kingdom. Outside of his house, strong, honorable, virtuous. Inside his house, something is deeply wrong. Go, let's keep going. So uh, then this next section, uh, verses 6 through 11, um, we have the, uh, the outbreak of conflict between Abner and Ishbosheth. Um, so first you have the conflict between David's house and Saul's house, David and Ishbosheth. Um, now within Ishbosheth's house, um, which is growing weaker and weaker and weaker. Um, within that house, though, still Abner is growing stronger, and you have a conflict that breaks out here. So now we don't just have the national conflict, we also have uh, the conflict conflict within the very uh, royal house of Ishbosheth. And it arises uh, because Ishbosheth accuses Abner of sleeping uh, with his father's concubine. Now here's why that matters. This isn't just um, uh, some sexual tryst that Ishbosheth is calling uh, calling Abner out on. This is, in fact, if you, uh, if you'll remember, well, we haven't covered it yet. It's coming in the future. Um, so here's a spoiler. Uh, when David, uh, has to flee from his son Absalom, one of the things that Absalom does is begin to sleep with all of David's concubines. The reason why is there's political, there's a political motivation there. Um, to sleep with a king's concubine is to presume or to claim the royal authority that that king has. It's a way of replacing the king. So what Ishbosheth accuses Abner here of is, is not primarily a sexual issue. It's primarily an issue of um, you're claiming the throne. You're, you're now beginning to kind of push me aside and assert your place as Saul's replacement, as the heir to Saul's throne. Now, um, the text never tells us whether he actually did that or not. I think there's a lot of indicators in the text that he didn't do it. First, he, he's the one that, that elevated Ishbosheth um, and, and, uh, and crowned him as king. Second, um, when he's accused of that, he doesn't just now play his cards and push Ishbosheth um, all the way out. Abner has grown great in this house. I mean, he is great among the tribes that are following Ishbosheth. Um, and uh, and Ishbosheth, by all accounts, Everywhere in this text, even next week, um, appears to be uh, just kind of a groveling, not very strong man um, leading. Um, second, Abner doesn't then take the, uh, take the throne for himself. Um, he turns, and his response to this accusation, 
after he says, I've shown um, steadfast love and faithfulness to you and to your house, um, and you now have accused me of uh, essentially trying to um, assert myself on the throne of your house, um, I instead now, rather than, I'm not, I'm not going to take the throne, I, I gave it to you, and now I'm going to take it, and I'm going to give it to David, um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to rest till it's done. And so uh, Abner then goes, uh, sends a message to David, and then uh, there's an interesting turn here in verses 17, um, actually not, sorry, in verses 12 to 16, in which David gets this message from Abner, says, okay, great, but I won't see your face until you bring me Michael. If you remember, Michael is his first wife. So lots of wives is kind of a theme here. Uh, Michael was given to, to, given to David, promised to David, um, and then taken by Saul and given to Pal- Paltiel. Um, and so David sends a message back to Abner and says, uh, bring me Michael and then, you, then we'll talk. Uh, but then the interesting thing is he sends the exact same message to Ishbosheth, uh, give me Michael, which puzzled me all week. Why would he send the same message to these two people? And I think there's two reasons. One, um, whoever's going to bring Michael is the one who's in charge. Um, if Ishbosheth has the, the, the fortitude and the authority to go take this woman um, and bring his relative and bring her to David, um, then he's got the power and authority. If Abner um, has the power and authority, he's going to be the one that's able to get Michael and bring her to David. Um, in other words, David doesn't want to deal with Abner if it's not going to, if it's not going to actually end the war. He doesn't want to see Abner, talk to Abner, Ab- Abner negotiate with Abner. If at the end of the day, what's going to happen is um, he's not really in charge. He doesn't really have any authority. He doesn't really have any power. He really doesn't have any influence. Um, and, and so if Ishbosheth's got the power, the influence, the authority, then let's talk, um, let's, let's talk to Ishbosheth. If, if, if Abner has the power and authority, then let's talk to Abner. Um, but the, the test to see who actually has the authority is going to be who's the one who's actually able to bring Michael to him. Abner is the one who's able to do that. Before he does that, he gathers, uses his influence, uses his power, uses his growing strength, um, and goes before the, the, the tribes of Israel and specifically the tribe of Benjamin, which is where Saul's family and house is from, and essentially convinces them, hey, it's time that we go and join up with David. Enough of this. This is what God had promised anyway. It's time for us to join him. Then you have this tragic terrible, sad, you can just imagine it being played out on film and people crying uh, as he goes and gets Michael um, and uh, her husband, I shouldn't laugh, this is sad, um, her husband is just following along, weeping um, as he takes Michael to see David. He takes her to see David. Um, he meets with David, they agree to a peace, they have a feast of reconciliation which is notable. This bloody civil war is now over. The, the, the tribes have come in. They've agreed uh, to follow Abner. Abner has now gone to David and said, we want to make you king um, over all of Israel. David then says, great, you brought me Michael. You've got the power to do this. Um, he clearly had the power to do it since he'd already met with the, the elders of these tribes um, and gotten them to agree to David's enthronement. They have a feast then to celebrate this. And then specifically the language used is that David sends Abner away in peace. Um, that's not just like a nice sentiment. That means he sends him away um, and that, that he can't be harmed. Um, they're, now, they're now reconciled. They're now at peace. 
And so um, those who would have seen Abner as their enemy and someone to be struck down and killed um, can no longer see him that way. He's been sent away under, the co- under David's covering of peace. Joab comes back. He uses uh, very strong language to essentially say, um, the language in Hebrew is that, that this man's trying to seduce you. He's trying to get you in bed. Um, he's, trying to, uh, he's trying to trick you. Um, and, uh, and then Joab goes, calls Abner back. And then one, one more little detail from this text that I want to point out to you um, is that he calls him back to Hebron. Um, in the Old Testament, the, in Old Testament law, if you killed someone on accident, you committed manslaughter, um, you then, uh, there would be an avenger of the blood who, would, who was sent to try to kill you, um, usually from the family of the person that you killed, and you would then flee because you don't want to get killed. And so you'd run. And there was a handful of cities in Israel where you could flee. And if you made it to that city, you could not be killed. Um, you were protected then by the law. Um, and, and you couldn't leave the city. If you stepped outside of the gate of the city, um, the avenger of blood could kill you. Um, but if you stayed in that city for the period of time allotted, uh, you wouldn't be killed. You were, held, you were kept safe um, because you'd killed someone on accident, which is uh, implied in the language around how Joab's uh, brother is killed, how Abner killed his brother, which is to say he killed him with the butt of the spear. Um, Lightheart, uh, Peter Lightheart, in his commentary, um, actually believes that the, the language kind of combined with uh, the reference here to Hebron and the uh, cities of refuge uh, indicates that, that Abner didn't like turn and do a cool move um, with his spear to kill uh, Joab's brother. Um, but instead, it's, uh, he's running with his spear um, and Joab's brother runs into the back of the spear. Uh, regardless, um, the interesting note here is that um, if you let the, the, the law play itself out, and let's... let's now assume that Abner is uh, guilty of manslaughter. He's uh, accidentally killed Joab's brother. Um, then fleeing to Hebron would be the, the place where the avenger of blood, the family member who now comes to um, reap revenge on, those, on the one who killed their family member, Hebron would be a place where you could go to avoid that, to be kept safe. And he went to Hebron and was declared safe, declared uh, to be under David's peace. And yet Joab calls him back to specifically that city. doesn't go out to pursue him and kill him in the wilderness. He actually calls him back to Hebron. There in Hebron, uh, calls him aside for a secret conversation and stabs him. Kills him. So, the narrative tension right here is that everything that was just accomplished, the end of a long, bloody civil war, between the 12 tribes of Israel. All of it has now been brought to a close. Now just needs to be announced. Everything needs to, we need to kind of rearrange and reform the government. We need to get things set up and established. But now, the primary representative, the most powerful and authoritative and influential voice for the tribes that were in rebellion against David's rule has just been murdered in cold blood by the leader of David's armies. Do you see the tension of the moment? I just like to imagine this as like one of those TV miniseries. And for, for weeks, we've been watching these hour and a half long episodes. The tension, the drama, the blood, everybody dying. Things are just a mess. And now we have a chance at peace. And it looks like we've achieved it. 
Everything is now going to go great. David is finally going to be on the throne. Brother is going to stop killing brother. Abner, this noble, relatively noble man um, working for a usurper to the throne. Joab, this kind of wicked, shady character um, who, who uh, is, is, Abner is now coming to David's side. And right here, Joab murders Abner. Like, the next thing that could very easily happen at this moment is just things go gangbusters. The whole peace collapses immediately and war breaks out. A renewed war breaks out. Ishbosheth has a great opportunity right here to rally everyone around him and say, they tricked us, they tricked Abner, they murdered, we were seeking peace with them, they murdered Abner, let's go take them. Like, here's a perfect opportunity. He doesn't do that. And right here, David is brilliant. He hears about what happens, and he immediately announces to all the people who are with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn. He, he puts on a very public mourning. He, he, uh, he says over and over and over again. In fact, um, the text says three times. Everybody mentions it. Um, the text says three times. David didn't know about this. He wasn't behind this. He had nothing to do with this. So he calls everyone to a public um, mourning. He, 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 he comes up with a poem. He writes a song right on the spot. Sings the song, Should Abner Die as a Fool? Um, the, the word here is Nabal. It's, if you'll remember from Nabal in 1 Samuel, it's a worthless fellow, a worthless guy. Um, should Abner die as someone who is worthless? Um, your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You're, you're this great warrior who's never been captured. Um, you've never been killed. You've never been wounded. You're, you're this incredible, uh, incredible warrior. Um, but you fell as one before the wicked. You've fallen. He's singing this publicly. He's king. He's had everyone tear their clothes, cover themselves in dust and mourn. And he's singing right here a song that names Joab as wicked and names Abner as not a worthless man, not an evil man, not a man who should have died this way. Calls all the people to weeping. And he goes on a very public fast. Everything David is doing here is very, very public. And we tend to see, uh, we, we tend to see things as either this is genuine or he's just publicly putting it on a show to try to save the peace. Biblically, it doesn't work that way. In fact, it never has to work that way. But he is being savvy. He's not going into a closet letting people guess what happened. He is as publicly as he can um, demonstrating, I had nothing to do with this. I'm sad that this happened. This is terrible. We should mourn. This man is wicked. This man was good. And this should have never happened this way. And, and he goes so far as to, well, to give a rather remarkable curse on Joab's family. Let me just let you hear it. That no one, none of his house would be one of these things, at least one of these things. One who has, that everyone, that should always be someone who has a discharge. The Hebrew here is a little bit more anatomically specific and is gross. He's basically saying all the men in his household should always have a really gross problem. Okay, that's first. 
They should always have someone who is leprous. So, those, so their skin would just fall off. If those two things, uh, by the way, both uh, would make you unclean, unable to come before the Lord, um, into the Lord's presence. Third, a man, the men from that house, they should have discharge, they should be leprous, they should hold a spindle. This phrase means that a, a man is cast in a woman's role. Um, in the Bible, there's nothing wrong with women and there's nothing wrong with men v. men, but there's always something wrong with women who act like men and men who act like women. That's always the problem. Um, and here, he wants Joab's grandsons uh, to be cast in the role of a woman while having discharging sores in bad places. Um, they would be killed by the sword and they would always lack bread. If someone says this about you, you should fight them. Like this is as bad as it gets, but he makes this public pronouncement of a curse upon Joab and Joab's brother, and he specifically names them as wicked. Uh, he ends by saying uh, in verse 39, and I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Two things that David points to here, um, and then I want us to make some applicable observations. And this is going to be um, particularly important. The language he uses here is, I was gentle, though anointed king. These men, uh, it's translated in the ESV, as, are more severe. The, the word here is more hard, um, uh, more powerful, more... Um, the, the language here is not just, they were harsh and I was nice. Um, the language here is, I was being gentle, and these men have more power. I don't have the power to overcome their hardness. So in this text is actually a confession of why David's not doing more than just speaking words. He's saying they shouldn't have done this. They're wicked. He was righteous. But I can't really do anything about it. Which is interesting because I, I don't know how big Joab is but I don't think he's as big as Goliath. But David looks at the situation and the end of it, after proclaiming his innocence, demonstrating his sorrow, being clear, morally clear about who's right, who's wrong, who did what. At the end of it, he says, these men are harder than I am. They're stronger than I am. I can't do anything about this. So what do we take from this? What do we see? I think there's a handful of things. First, I'm going to start by speaking well of David. Um, but then I'm going to expose that. I want to talk a bit more about that last piece. Um, first, there's a contrast uh, throughout these chapters, earlier chapters in 1 Samuel. And it's actually going to continue. There's a contrast to be seen between David and Joab. Um, A a contrast of what does masculinity and leadership look like um, in public. Uh, What what, what is primarily different about them is that David knows there's a time to make war and a time to be at peace. Joab doesn't know that there's a time to make war and a time to be at peace. 
Um, Joab is compulsive. He's violent. It's going to come up again and again and again. And David is going to leave this problem, uh, the problem of Joab and Joab's violence, that he's a man of blood, um, to his son Solomon. But there is a contrast throughout the reign of David and the upcom- um, um, and the uh, kind of growth of David's power and authority. There's a contrast between Joab who just wants to kill and act, act violently and, con- and, and he's conniving and he's smart. Um, he's a lot of things, but what he's not is tempered. Uh, what he's not is wise in choosing when he fights and when he doesn't fight. And this is exactly the thing that David demonstrates that he's taught by God um, in 1 Samuel in knowing when to kill and when not to kill. When to go to battle, when to go to war, and when not to go to war. Um, uh, when to hold back the sword when it's Saul, and when to bear the sword. Um, this is a, a, a primary point in David's development um, and his preparation to become king. And this tells us something about the, the kind of model of if we can pay attention to the heroes and the scoundrels in Scripture, um, I think we can learn something about what it means um, uh, to, to be a man and to be a leader in our current culture. If you look at Ishbosheth, you see a bit of a blithering weakling. He's insecure. He, he, he gives indications in this text of being um, as kind of neurotic as his uh, father Saul was. Um, He's given office, he's given authority, he has a place, and he doesn't know how to wield any of it for, for his own good, for his, for his nation's good, for his family's good. He, he's just anxious, afraid, and doesn't have any real power. And then you have Joab. He, here is a, a man who proves himself again and again to be violent, to be compulsive, and to be vindictive. Here's a situation in, in 2 Samuel 3 where um, David is forming a peace. This is the goal, that the, the, the tribes would come together, that peace would be established, that the civil war would be, would be ended, that, King, that David's throne would be established. Joab doesn't even hesitate to, to cast all of that into question, to threaten all of it, to satisfy his need for a bloody revenge. And so you have Joab. And then you have David. Um, David kind of exposes um, kind of our modern notions of what sorts of Christian men we want. He sings, he writes poetry, sometimes on the spot in a politically onerous situation. But he's also the kind of guy that goes out and, and because he wants to marry a particular girl, goes out and kills 100 Philistines and cuts off their foreskins and brings and throws them before the king. Like this is the model for us of the coming of Jesus. So so I think that there is um, a tendency either to think of, of, of men primarily in the vein of Joab. We want these compulsive, manly, strong men who, who are just violent with everything. Or I think far more often in our evangelical subculture, we tend to think of the kinds of boys we want to raise or the kinds of men we want to raise as gentle, sweet, nice, happy to carry your bags sorts of men. Like, there's a temptation as you raise your boys, fathers and mothers, maybe mothers in particular, to, to inadvertently raise soft boys. Now, now I think you should raise boys who learn how to sing. 
and learn how to write poetry. And also, for the right girl, are willing to go out and kill 100 Philistines and cut off their foreskins. And then throw them in front of the father-to-be as a demonstration of your prowess in battle and your worthiness to marry the daughter. And I think far too often we raise boys to be nice and responsible, never to take too big a risks, um, ne- never to demonstrate any level of dangerousness, dangerousness, violence. But, but we want our boys just a little bit wild. Um, we want them to be disciplined. We want them to be focused on obedience to the Lord. And obedience to the Lord sometimes means killing 100 Philistines and cutting off their foreskins. Like, it's that element, and the fact that David mentions it here, that I just find wonderful. He doesn't just say, yeah, I killed 100 Philistines in order to marry Michael. He says, no, I killed 100 Philistines, and then I did all the things necessary to cut off their foreskins and bring them and throw them before Saul. It's like a level of detail that we didn't need, but it adds so much as you imagine the character of David. And this is the kind of boys we want to raise. And men, this is the kind of man you want to be. Be at peace when there's peace. But go to war when it's time for war. And so the question then arises, what kind of man are you? Parents, what kind of boys are you raising? Are you raising Ishbosheths? Happy to claim a title, but actually weak. Are, are you raising Joabs? Strong, happy to go into violence, happy to argue, to yell. Happy to force their will into any situation. But at the end, it's just a pretend masculinity. It's just a a sort of masculinity that um, is compulsive, ultimately insecure, and isn't serving any greater good, isn't submitted to any greater good. Or are we raising Davids? Men who can sing men who can write poetry, men who love the Lord, men who stop and ask God, what do I do next? What do I do next? Clearly submitted to a larger, um, to, 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 to a larger, greater king, bearing all his authority under the authority of God, and if it comes down to it, he can kill 100 Philistines just to win the girl he wants. So men, what kind of man are you? What kind of man are you becoming? Fathers and mothers, what kind of men are you raising? Second, this is going to come up and it's going to be a problem that gets larger and larger and larger. Having lots of kids is not the same as being a father. One of the ways that scripture teaches us the folly of polygamy, 
I mean, it, it, it's, it happens throughout the Old Testament. So one of the things you'll get in uh, debates or conversations with those who don't believe the Bible is, yeah, but the Old Testament, it, it, it endorses polygamy. No, it doesn't. It allows it to, it, it, it's this thing that exists in the culture, and God, rather than killing it on day one, demonstrates for us that this is foolish, it's not ideal, and it's folly. And one of the ways it shows us that um, is actually specifically David's story. Here's a strong man, a mighty man, a virtuous man, a man who demonstrates his, um, his eagerness to repent of sin, a man who acts virtuously and nobly, um, an extremely capable leader and warrior. And at the end of the day, he is unable to parent his children effectively because he has too many of them. He has too many households running at the same time. He is multiplying wives. And when you multiply wives, you multiply children. And pretty quickly, the thing gets so broad that you cannot effectively father. The thing that destroys David is he failed in his household to father the children that God had given him. That he spread things out so wide and so thin that he was ineffective at the responsibilities and the tasks that God had given him. Now in our day, unless you live in a very small town in Utah and are named Zedekiah, polygamy doesn't look like having, I wrote that joke down because I was really excited about it (laughs) and I didn't want to forget it. (laughs) Unless you live in a very small town in Utah, I can't do it twice. Um, it doesn't look like you having like a bunch of uh, wives all at the same time. Um, the other joke I thought of was you know, the, the real life stories where it's like some dad who's got a family in this continent and a family in this city and family city and he kind of splits his time between them. But anyway, okay. So um, it doesn't look like that. It, it, it looks different. It, it looks like maybe a series of marriages number of them ending in divorce with the result that you've got children in a lot of different households. That's polygamous. And, and if it's impossible, difficult, if not impossible, for David to have a big palace and have his queen's in the palace and to have these children in the palace and it's, he gets spread too thin there, um, how in the world... Can you father children across multiple households, multiple families? So things get broader and broader and broader and your task gets harder and harder and harder until it's impossible. But it also doesn't look, this this folly that exposes the problem with polygamy, it doesn't just show up in multiple families, serial marriages, It often shows up, and here's where I really want to call us to something. It shows up in fathers who neglect or even avoid their duties as dads. And they do it in other ways. Not perhaps by forming new households, not perhaps by series, endless series of divorces, or just having lots and lots of wives, but through overworking, through underworking through drink, through an obsession with the next sporting event. Every college football season, when my kids were mostly at home, um, 
is a reminder of the temptation to not escape. See, God has called you to love your wife and he tells us in Isaiah that he's given us marriage in part, at least in part, that he might bear from us, might receive from us godly offspring. Um, To do that well requires time, it requires effort, it requires you seeing it as a vocation. Um, To to spend your life, I'm not just escaping from the home, I'm not just finding ways to avoid these tasks, but seeing the call to love your kids, to talk with your kids, to play catch with your kids, to teach your kids how to hammer a nail, um, or, or to to at least appreciate college football as you do, Um, to to whatever the thing is, um, dads, your call is not to avoid the task um, that you've been given, which is to father your children, which means not just have them, but to raise them, to disciple them, to love them, to raise them that they might be David's. It is so easy for men to do all of the noble, virtuous work outside of the home while the seeds of their unfaithfulness are right in their kitchen. Their failure to do the things, that all the things that God has charged them with doing. Do not neglect your fatherly duties. To be a father is not merely to have children. It is to raise them, to disciple them, to teach them what it means to be a man or woman, to teach them the nature and the character and the goodness of God. Oh, have lots of kids, but make sure you father all of them. Next and last, um, as David's problems are growing in his own household, and he doesn't know it yet, um, all, all, almost every son mentioned in this paragraph, by the way, will cause major problems in David's future. One will rape his sister. Uh, one will murder his brother and attempt to take the throne from David. Th- th- this, this is a lineage of sons who, who were not fathered well. But then... Last thing, he has a problem that he doesn't know about growing in his home, but he has a problem that he absolutely knows about, uh, knows about right in front of him. It's a problem that he's going to pass on to his son because he will never deal with it. That's Joab and his brother. Um, that problem becomes and maintains and is a problem in his house um, throughout his reign that he allows a bloodthirsty, violent man to go unpunished, undisciplined, unrestrained. And the temptation, temptation I pray that we would never fall prey to, or that we'd stop falling prey to, is to avoid problems, to punt problems down the road. Um, the, The reality is that you are called by God. If he puts a problem right in front of you, deal with it. Face it. Address it. Don't assume it's going to go away on its own. Um, Husbands and wives, if there's a problem in your marriage, you need to talk about it. You need to face it. You need to step towards it. Don't 
punt it. It's not going to go away on its own. Um, you actually have to push and move towards it. Um, if, if there's a problem arising with your children, you must move towards it. If there's a problem in your workplace, um, you must move towards it. Um, our constant temptation, and it's been um, kind of barreled into us in our culture, is to not face the trouble that God puts in front of you. How much time and energy do we waste simply sitting around in our own wisdom and our own strength, trying to come up with solutions to these problems in the hopes that before we come up with an answer, it will all go away. So what do we do? Um, it's notable to me the contrast in chapter 1 with David in chapter 3. Chapter one, Saul and Jonathan die. What does David do immediately? Not implement his strategy to take the throne. He gets on his face and he calls upon God to lead him, to direct him what he should do next. Here he is faced with a bloodthirsty man that that may have just cost him the peace that that he's worked to earn. And what does he do? He mourns, he sings, He curses, but he doesn't pray. And how many times we're faced with division, we're faced with problems that we don't know how to solve, we're faced with hard men that we feel too weak to overcome, and we feel completely stuck. And we either try to come up with our own strategies for dealing with it or we punt it down the field saying I'm going to avoid this problem um, rather than getting on our face and asking that God would lead us and direct us and help us. So I would ask you, I I would encourage you in this way. If you're facing a problem in your home, if you're facing a problem at work, wherever you're facing a problem, a problem that you don't want to deal with, particularly those, or a problem you feel too weak to deal with or unwise to deal with. I would, at the very least, say get on your face and pray. Because here's the reality. These are the stories God loves to tell. He he loves it. I'm just warning you. He loves to put you in a situation where you feel weak and you have no idea what to do. When you first have a baby, like I've never felt weaker in my life than the day my children were born, all three of them, like standing there and going, I have no idea what to do, often still have no idea what to do. And it's amazing to me how little I pray about what do I do next? How do I father next? I've been in work situations, not now, thank goodness, but but I've been in work situations before where it seemed like I was facing hard men in a situation I had no idea what to do. And I spent an endless amount of energy coming up with strategies and plans and, and how can I fix this problem and how can I shore up this issue and how can I deal with this rather than just getting on my face and praying and then moving towards the problem. The reality is, is that your life will be filled with those moments. If you have any level of awareness whatsoever. And in those moments, pray. Acknowledge your weakness. Acknowledge your need for wisdom. And ask God for help. And in closing, 
This book, 2 Samuel, will be for us, I pray, an endless exploration of the greatness and the glory of Jesus. Um, David is the character, the most character in the entirety of the Bible that is given to us as a mirror, a reflection, a, a, a finger painting of the glory and the majesty of Jesus himself. And he does that both by, by um, showing wisdom and showing um, strength and showing courage um, in this form. And we know that it's magnified in Jesus. And he also shows us, um, here's this imperfect picture of the, the righteousness and the strength of Jesus as he fails and he doesn't quite deal with a Joab. Even though he identifies with moral clarity what's right and what's wrong, he, he fails to actually confront that evil and address that evil. Um, Jesus Jesus, and many times, is like David, only infinitely better. And in other places, Jesus is nothing like David at all. You see, he takes the moral clarity that David has here, and he does something about it. Jesus comes to destroy the works of the evil one. He comes to cleanse us of all sin, that we might be made whole and righteous. He will Brook no peace with Joab's. He comes to establish his righteousness. So may 2 Samuel be week in and week out for us a vision of the perfect holiness and strength and courage and cunning and wisdom of Jesus, the son of David. But may you know that he has conquered the Joabs. He has defeated evil and sin. He has cleansed us and made peace with us. Let's pray and prepare for communion.